Welcome to episode 347 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. As we shift from summer to fall in the Northern Hemisphere, you may feel the urge to cram and finish all of your big goals before the end of the year. Realistically, you've got about 12 to 15 weeks, not counting vacation and holiday time. Narrow your focus to the one or two goals that, if accomplished, will set you up for success next year. Remember not to overwhelm yourself and end up moving seven projects forward just incrementally that won't get you to where you need to be in January. I took stock and decided I would launch my next certification cohort in October to help you become more confident and competent using Zoom to host transformational, inclusive, and engaging online experiences. Known as the 5% Advantage Program because you'll learn how to get 5% better each time you speak or host virtually, this four-week program includes three options to participate, audit, personalized feedback, or certification. If you're interested in participating or you would like to receive free content related to leveraging Zoom, fill out the interest form and I'll be in touch. The form is available at robbysamuels.com forward slash maven. This is a live cohort program with access to a library of video tutorials. We meet on Zoom several times over the month, and you'll have the opportunity to practice what you learn by hosting your own sessions. Are you ready to move from Zoom fatigue to Zoom intrigue? Fill out the interest form at robbysamuels.com forward slash maven. Now a word from our sponsor, and then we'll dive into this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest defines success as using your authentic skills to serve others without depleting yourself. She's a catalyst for positive change, a certified executive coach, a professional speaker, and a productivity consultant who has dedicated her life to the intersection of productivity and inclusivity. She believes that exceptional leadership and nurturing environments can bring out the best in everyone. She inspires individuals designed for well-being and cultivates sustainable performance while avoiding exhaustion and burnout. She encourages leaders to design inclusive performances to invite the richest contributions from every team member. This is a topic she explores with innovators as a host of the Happy Space podcast. She's also a sought-after media contributor to news and lifestyle shows, including The Huffington Post, Fast Company, The Globe and Mail, and CBC Radio. Whether speaking to one person or thousands, she loves inspiring massive shifts by inviting you to pay attention to little things that make a big difference. Please join me in welcoming my friend, Claire S. Kumar. Hey, Robbie. Good to be with you. Oh, it's such a pleasure. So as you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context here is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Mm, Love those questions. So leadership, to me, it's about becoming a compelling person to follow. It's not that you have all of the ideas, but it's that you are the person that people are looking to, to come to their next steps. And so being a leader, especially now, I've recently stepped back into actually having people working for me again um, and realizing there's a real responsibility to recognize that I'm on a journey alongside these people that I'm working with. And it's my job 
to figure out how to invite them to be at their best. I have a couple people now that I work with that are so conscientious and they can, and, and actually it's, it's happened a couple of times where people are so conscientious and in their own anxiety that they're ready to walk away before having a conversation about, you know, what's going on and what can we do and how, how do we get this right? So my job as a leader to stay curious, to be collaborative, to be creative and to, uh, to be courageous in figuring out how do we keep working together so that the talent that I see really is brought, brought to bear. So that's, that's what I think a good leader does is, is standing in that place. Uh, when did I realize I don't know. This is going way back, but I was in the brownies when I was <laughs> about six or seven years old. And I was a sixer, which meant that you were the, I was invited to be a leader in the group. I don't know if um, I felt particularly like, like a leader, but that was my first invitation to step into that. And it felt, it felt okay. And there was some sense of, I would be the one who would kind of guide us as to what we were going to do next, or even be the translator for what the um, the leaders were sharing for us to do. So that's a, that's my first memory, memory of leader. But you know what? I was an eldest child. So I'm going to tell you right now, my sisters would tell you I was bossy pants all the time. So I think there's leadership in all kinds of places. I love this. So first, your, your definition, I just want to go back to compelling person mm-hmm. to follow. And then you talked about being curious and courageous and like it's it's about being really present and and seeing the best in your people and helping them see the best in themselves as well um and i love that you brought us way back to the brownies so for those who aren't familiar brownies is before girl scouts uh so it's early primary grade school ages uh i was a brownie i get it i don't remember (laughs) being picked to be a leader that's really cool that that was your experience and it, you sort of looking back, you're like, what did they see in me? And and now when you mentioned that you are the eldest of how many, how many siblings do you have? Two sisters. Yeah. So you, and what's the age gap? I'm kind of, kind of curious. 19 months with my middle sister and then six years from me to my youngest sister. Oh, so the big age gap for the youngest one, but 19 months, like you're really, you're kind of almost on top of each other then, but you were still the eldest <laughs> oh yeah i all Name my that. cards all my birthday cards to my parents love your eldest daughter i claimed that you claimed <laughs> I that owning that terribly yeah. hard so i wonder if that's how you showed up also when you were heading into the brownies to be part of that group experience like you had the ability to sort of see more of what's happening and you you had the experience of being in a room with other people and wanting them to you wanted to be able to compel them <laughs> to follow <laughs> you. <laughs> well, I was just bossy and ordering people around then, I think. But I really you know, little that. girls get that label all the time, right? But when a little boy speaks up, it doesn't happen the same way. So I, the bossy label, still today, I think mm-hmm. little girls are going to get that if that's who they who they are and how they show up. Yeah. So what was life like on the playground later on? Like when you're in grade school, did you run for office as you got mm-hmm. into later years, into junior high and high school? Were you involved in in high school, sports? Like, yeah. Yeah, I was involved in tennis and I was a member of the choir. And so those were my ways of participating when I, when I actually left the public system and went back into private school, it was a smaller environment and I was able to find my place in a school of 1200, 1500 kids. I was just the smart one, one of the smart kids. I wasn't, I wasn't able to find a, a place there. So I was, I don't know, grade nine, 10, kind of just hiding, um, I think. Um, I did a 11, 12, and 13 back in the day in two years in this private school. And I think I found some confidence there. Not a ton. But I found more when I left. And so first year university, I do remember running for council. I think I... I didn't understand copyright infringement, so I modeled a Diet Coke can, and I had Vote Claire mimicking the Coke can, and you're not allowed to do that stuff, but I made flyers, and I think it was my first stab at, oh, maybe I, I have a lot to say. I tend to have a lot to say about how things should be or how I see things could be improved. And that was my first foray. I didn't really um, prepare speeches or understand campaigning or any of that. So I wasn't successful, but that was my first foray into thinking, 
Hmm. I really want to have a voice and a say. It's interesting now, though, um, you're making me think of other uh, another role that I had. I volunteered to be on a board for a national association here in Canada. And the board ended up being toxic and I ended up leaving. And since then, I have chosen very selectively when I have a place of when I take on a leadership role and when I prefer to be come to me behind the scenes and I'll be that advisor in your ear, but I don't want to be in the crosshairs, if you will. I can, I can appreciate that on a very personal level. I was just reflecting with a friend over the weekend that I haven't been officially a part of a board um, since about 20 years, actually. I was thinking it was like 2002, probably 2000. Yeah, it was about 2002. I basically, mm-hmm. since I moved to Boston, so that was around that time frame. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I got a lot done with just me and one other person. That, yeah, that was kind of what my motto was for a long time. But I love being that person that you can tap to like, you know, we really need help right now. Mm-hmm. Can you do it? And I'm like, I'll only say yes if I can and I'll do it without you having to remind me. Um, yeah. so that's how I try to show up. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, it's really interesting. These formative years, um, you know, you, you moved a bit. So you, mm-hmm. you, you ended up in um, public school in Canada because that's where you really grew up. But you were yeah. born in the UK. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Back in the UK and went to a nursery school there and came to Canada for for kindergarten, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I remember being in London, Ontario for six months. Hamilton, Ontario for two years, Chatham for four years, and then over to a boarding school in England. So 10 different schools growing up, which which changes changes you for sure. Yeah, so I was bringing it up because I didn't know how many it was, but it sounds like mm-hmm. the, the need to keep trying to find yourself and find your people is like a recurring theme, right? Yeah, I remember by high school, I thought, okay, when I switch now, I'm going to be that quiet, wise girl. That when she says something, everyone's going to say, oh, she's saying something. Never worked. I, I've always blurt things out as soon as I think of them. I'm working on that continually. And uh, yeah, I've always been someone who's, I think, speaks her mind a lot. So Yeah. Yeah. And it's I graduated with 1,300 people. Um, mm. So I know big schools. Uh, so it's 2,600 kids in a, in a two-grade two, uh, building. Um, so you can get lost (laughs) if you want to, and you can form big groups of friends if you want to. It's, it's, it's a, it's like, it kind of trains you for life because out in real life, like that's what the workforce is like. It sounds like you did go to university now at 12 years old. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Was there a, a clear path ahead? Not at all, but I do remember probably earlier than that. I really wanted to write with big talk. Oh, I would look at my teachers and I would really, I aspired to be someone who would be writing with the big chalk. I just thought that was fantastic. I don't know why. And it seems that that's what I've evolved to in my work now is essentially teaching uh, in whether it's a keynote, whether it's a workshop, whether, and one-on-one coaching, not so much. I stay in that curious, curious place, but um yeah, I think that I was drawn to that role. And then I, I, yeah, I was one of those people that seemed to be good at a lot of different things. And so there was nothing calling me. I did follow my interest in science to my degree. So I did it an undergrad in biology. But I also think that was, there was a part of looking at my father, who was a surgeon, mom was a nurse and thinking, well, maybe med school. And uh, my love of science is still there, but I, I don't like hospitals, actually. <laughs> I don't like clinical much of anything. So I realized that that wasn't going to be for me. Uh, I didn't want to be working in a lab because I like people interaction way too much. And I, I chose not to go into teaching. I didn't like the confined nature of the system, even though I think I would have loved the work. Um, I didn't like feeling like I was going into something with a rigid schedule. So, I mean, it makes sense that I'm an entrepreneur now, but I didn't, I didn't have words for all of those choices at that time. Yeah. Did you know any entrepreneurs growing up or, um, so so this wasn't even a possibility. Like you, you know, what you had was people in the medical world that you were sort of like, Oh, do I want to emulate them? 
Right. I didn't know uh, about offices. I didn't even know there were uh, office buildings that people went to. Right. Because the people you knew like went and did that kind of more hospital focused work, it sounds mm-hmm. like. So you get, you graduate with a biology degree. You decide not to go to medical school. I was decided for me. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't have had the marks to get in. Like, where do you go next? So, yeah, great question. And, and I refer to this a lot. I was sort of like, what do I do now? And I still refer to this book and refer clients to this book. What color is your power parachute? I have my 1998 version still because I loved it. It was a lot of self-reflection and looking at what I had an intrinsic motivation and curiosity to learn. So science made sense because I still am nerding out on science. But I realized I have a blend of a creativity and analytical thinking. And when you look at work that involves both of those skills, one of the options that comes up is marketing. And so I decided then to pursue a program and I went to Laurier, Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo for a business program. And that's when I was like, oh, professors who speak English as a first language. (laughs) That was amazing. I could understand everybody easily. And to me, it was like, this is easy. This is common sense. This is like, I don't, nothing was conceptually difficult in the, in the courses that I was doing, which was different than biochemistry and organic chemistry for me. And, uh, I, I, uh, I really loved the idea of marketing and then chose to work in, in that profession for quite some time. And so you, was that an advanced degree, like a master's that you got? It was an in-between experience. So there was an MBA at Laurier and there was a Bachelor of Commerce. And at this time they were offering a diploma in business administration, which is this like never, never, like limbo land of, in terms of um, degrees uh, with the option to go to do an MBA after a year. And I just never felt the need to go and do that second year. But it's interesting because it's a DBA, like a diploma in business business admin, which is interesting because when companies were recruiting for business um, students to, to look for their next employees, they weren't looking for diploma in business students. So I was dating somebody then who was a computer engineer at Waterloo. And he's like, this is in the back Back in the day, nothing electronic, right? Go sign up on the board for an interview, right? So I went over to Waterloo, which is just steps down the street, and I signed up for interviews. And I actually was then hired by Nortel, which was a cream of the crop then tech company in Canada. And so I, you know, you got to swim against the current, find a different path sometimes. And that was, I mean, I still owe him great thanks for that suggestion. I wouldn't have thought of it. Um, no imposter syndrome then. Sure, I'll, I'll sign up. But I remember being interviewed. One of my five interviews that day that I had was by an engineer who was like, what are you doing interviewing here? <laughs> so, you know, yeah. read the fine print. <laughs> like, well, you know, it's interesting because there's, there's a gendered piece there. To, to explore because women can read a job description that they can fill like six out of 10 of the things that are being requested. And they're like, well, I'm not good enough. And a guy can read that same thing and get like four out of 10 and be like, oh yeah, I can figure out the rest of this. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, that you true. had someone like, no, 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 just go put yourself in that, you yeah. know, go put yourself in, like say yes. And then you got the opportunity and now you're working at this like reputable company. What a nice way to, to like, start a career. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you as an entrepreneur, but I also know you as an entrepreneur who's had like various types of businesses, I'll say. Um, so when did you leave the world of marketing and decide not to continue down that, you know, the career path that was sort of laid in front of you? What was the deciding factor mm-hmm. in that? You know, I think if I had stayed in marketing and been able to continue with that, I may not have left. And if I had found flexibility, uh, one of the one of the neat things about my background, I think, is that I work for different kinds of organizations from startup to 30,000 people, companies, Tokyo, Toronto, Montreal. So lots of varied experience. Um, but what made me leave the corporate world was running into, I was in a sales support role at that point. And the job was mildly interesting to me, but not, mm. not riveting. So that was something interesting to note. I um, 
but what what drove me to really say I need to really be an entrepreneur and really um, hone in on this. I started this business in 2005 when I was in Montreal and my kids were really, really little. And then I went back to the corporate world when we relocated from Toronto or Montreal to Toronto because daycare was five times the price. And we all of a sudden had a mortgage again. And it was like, uh, if we're going to live here, I need to be able to contribute substantially. So the business that I had started started part-time with kids, I, I thought, let's put that on hold for a year as I come back. But I'll tell you, I cried three months um, before I left Montreal. And I had this complete anxiety about being sucked in the tr- to the Toronto rat race. And it was not absolutely not unfounded at all. I was, um, I was able to negotiate four days a week, but those were four days that I was ultimately mandated to be in the office when 90% of my job is on the phone. And uh, so I found that exceedingly exhausting. And it's interesting. I didn't have any language around sensitivity at that point. And the fact that I, I was exhausted by the construct of work and what I needed to, to do. I was totally on board to be there. I made an offer. I'll be in 50% of the time. And for any meeting, you need me. Not good enough. Out. So I negotiated my way out of that and realized, I mean, I was trying to have this autonomy that just wasn't on the menu in that office environment, despite the fact that they'd sold the technology to help you work from home and all of that, you know, it's a little ironic. I remember pitching to Canadian news media. I think I might have a story, you know, the telecom company that sells this equipment and tries to sell it to their customers to enable remote work denies work from home. They're like, you're just a complainer. (laughs) There's no story here. Last year, several radio interviews exactly on the topic of remote work and flexibility. So I'm, uh, I'm really thrilled with what's happening now. And you're a, you were a pioneer. I mean, you were ahead of your time in a lot of ways. You know, I interviewed um, someone who I think the word high sensitive is the right word. Um, she really leaned into the word introvert. And uh, when I think about her description, she couldn't stand the overhead lights. Like, you know, there, like by the time she, her commute took a lot out of her and then she'd get to the office and the overhead lights, the fluorescence would just like zap out all of her energy. So that to me isn't, that's not just like introvert, extrovert, you know, where do you get your energy? How do you replenish? That's the stimuli in the environment is just impacting you in a much deeper way. And I'm, I want to make sure I'm getting my definition well you know, how would you describe highly sensitive people? Like it's obviously going to affect each person different, but what would be a good, if someone's listening to this and being like, wait, that could be me. What oh, are yeah. some things you would describe that would help people say, oh, wait, that is me. Yeah. I'll give you my breakdown of, of high sensitivity, the, the seed model. So it's easy to remember. I just do want to say though, that um, high sensitivity, first of all, it applies equally across the population, um, across gender. There's no um, weighting one way or the other. But it's interesting in terms of introversion and extroversion, 70% of highly sensitive people are introverted. So taking or finding more energy with less people around versus extroverted, that's 30%. So coming to the seed model, SEED stands for sensitivity to stimulation. And so that's your nervous system is noticing everything. It's on and it's in a very stimulating environment. It's exhausting. It's also, you're the first person to smell smoke. So we need to value our sensory awareness, but we also need to insulate from all of that stimulation. Another gorgeous point with every one of these, there's with these elements, there's a real advantage to be proud of. And there's a challenge to kind of design around if you can. The first E is empathy. So we are the people that will immediately be tuning into what somebody else is feeling and and feel that. We are going to want to take care of people. We will will be the first person to look after and, and reach out to take care of someone. At the same time, you can imagine if I'm watching the news, it can be very uh, emotionally exhausting 
because you're caring about every darn thing, even watching films or books. I remember watching a movie and one time I was, luckily I was upgraded to business class because I took the duvet and I had it over my head while I had a big sob on the plane, you know? So um, empathy is there. And the, the second or the third, second E, third element is emotional responsiveness. And so that empathy can lead to this emotional welling up and it's it's there's in the science will show that our brain actually is showing more reaction to things so we might be more quick to anger i really i suspect that will smith at the oscars was emotional and responsive responsivity like being unleashed when you can't self-regulate um for any number of reasons uh the the other thing too though is we're very very self-aware so I can imagine Will has a lot to say about what happened and, and really knows what happened for him in that moment. D is really the profound point that, that really makes highly sensitive people special. It's deep processing. So our, we're, we've got neurons firing, we're connecting all the dots. If you listen to an interview that uh, George Strombolopoulos did, he's a Canadian broadcaster. He's got an uh, Apple Music show right now, um, based partially in LA as well. He interviewed the doctor, Gabor Mate, and they were talking about sensitivity. And these are both sensitive men. Now, uh, George rides a motorcycle and likes metal. (laughs) So there are different versions of sensitive men. But he was asking Dr. Mate where sensitivity or where creativity comes from and he's like it comes from the sensitive people it comes from the people that are connecting all those dots so connecting the dots is wonderful we come up with amazing output new ideas ways of looking at things we can also spin in analysis paralysis and just not move forward (laughs) so you just summed up your learning on this that you didn't have when you were growing up you didn't have as a young adult or young professional you just had these these like irritations that you became aware of and you were like, well, if I could just do this differently or if I could just have some flexibility, Mm -hmm. I could just modify if I could have choice, like that's, you were framing it in that perspective on an individual level. Now it sounds like you have more of a, uh, it's a macro issue. It's a systems level response, Mm -hmm. right? Because you are the individual who was being impacted. But now that you realize that there's a large percentage of people who don't realize, and you know, I always think of is when we adjust for the needs of the individual people, like who we think of as sort of on the outer edges, we all benefit, you know, like when the seats get a little bit wider because some people got bigger hips, everybody be happy (laughs) out there being more room on the plane, you know, like like we add a few more inches of space between me and the seat in front of me, you know, I'm, I'm not the person who needs all that extra space, but I'm also happy to have the extra space. So, um, I feel like you really had to live your way through to this. And of course, looking back, it all makes sense. But when you were trying to find your way after you realized that the job part wasn't going to work, like the JLB in a, in an office Mm -hmm. four days a week, how did you pick a next path? Like what was the Mm -hmm. next thread for you and who helped you figure that out too? Because is that when you stepped off of the like more career path and went more into the entrepreneurial way? Well, I think, you know, I was blessed in, in Quebec when I had my daughter. So it was my second child. They had far more generous uh, maternity leave and also not maternity leave, but the, the childcare on offer was subsidized by the government. So I ended up paying $7 a day for daycare. And when my daughter was 19 months and highly independent, but without words, I now know I could have taught her signing and I would have had I known, I needed to share her. So I needed to share her with someone else for a few hours a week. And so I had her in daycare there for three days a week. Um, And that gave me space and pause to reflect on what, what is it that I want to be applying myself? myself too. And I was in a mother baby group at that point with my daughter. And uh, one of the women there had just done a course in how to be an organizer, how to be a professional organizer. And she came to one of our baby group meetings and she said, oh, I just did this thing. It is not for me, but you, 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 this is for you. (laughs) Absolutely. Just from the way she saw that I 
organized my life and parented and uh, the way I did everything was in an organized, organized way. And I think it relates actually to my high sensitivity because being organized was a way to calm my world down. And I needed to do that visually in terms of things all around. I needed, I, I still prefer, I'm the kind of person who's in a hotel and will make the bed in the morning before the staff comes just so I can put my clothes down on it. And I'm not, it's not all topsy-turvy. I can't, I don't like a messy bed. And um, I realized I have some skills in this area. Uh, and I, I, so I did something, what I, I call it now a joy inventory with my coaching clients. I looked back through all the jo- different jobs that I had. And I thought, what were the small moments of joy? that I experienced. And one of the biggest, this made, this was surprising to me to, uh, to admit it. One of my greatest joys was serving tables, uh, in a restaurant. Uh, my feet hurt. I smelled terrible at the end of a shift because we had sizzle plates that would pour grease all over me. I was, it was, I wear a pink tuxedo shirt and a black bow tie. I mean, <laughs> you can picture this back in the day, but what I loved about it, I realized was the ability to influence somebody's experience in a short amount of time, suiting my impatience in terms of having an impact and getting paid right away and, and having personal connection. So I still remember a mom and her mother and an infant and a three-year-old who came for lunch. And because it was now two 30, I got crayons and, paper and was able to sit with that child in color while they could enjoy lunch because all the other tables had left. That kind of thing, I loved it. I got an amazing tip, but I wasn't doing it for the tip. I loved it. So it's, um, yeah, I think it was tuning into those moments of joy, which I realized I had connection with people. I was making an impact. The timing was not long. It was do something, see the impact, get paid. And I thought, I like this business model. I like this to turn into a business. So then I thought, I'm going to take these organizing and productivity skills and turn it into an organizing and productivity practice. I needed a break from the cubicle world. So I spent a lot of times in kitchens and closets, um, sort of Marie Kondo before she showed up. (laughs) And uh, I loved loved the work. It was very fulfilling to really unlock the way someone was living so they could relax and perform. And so the the next evolution was into coaching. And now I do that without so much slupping of bins. And uh, it's, you know, we, we, we declutter life to a certain extent and figure out how to unleash, unleash someone into their life a bit more. um, I love that. I love the happenstance of how you first introduced the idea of there being such a thing as a professional organizer. Um, I've had conversations with many guests over the years who uh, stumbled into the idea of coaching, Mm. stumbled into the idea of professional speaking Um, because, because it's not, you know, the jobs that we are told when we're younger, it's not Mm. career paths. It's not the environments we're told to look for. I think professional organizers are a good example of that. I, I actually have quite a few friends over the years that have been professional organizers and you know, hearing their story, their origin story of how they discovered that that talent they have, which they yeah. never thought of as a talent, if anything, it might have almost been a, a thing that held them back that they needed to be a, way, a certain way that they needed life to be, you know, they're the folks mm-hmm. that the paper on the table is at a, at a, at the right angle <laughs> to the edge of the desk, you know, and like they would walk into my office and it's like, oh, you know, like I'm the piler. So, but, you know, to reframe that, sensitivity as you and I describe it to uh, this real plus this this way of giving back order to someone else who may be feeling a little bit disorganized and a little bit chaotic and a little bit out of control and you're like let's get you some bins let's give you a, a system let's create a process um, four step I, plan to get organized I love this <laughs> yeah. idea let's start with one drawer just one drawer we just do one drawer just one drawer you know like just breaking all that down and I could see how that would shift into a coaching because then you start realizing how it applies in lots of other ways. Um, yeah, my clients were asking me to coach them, actually, which is how it, how it <laughs> happened. Somebody said to me, um, I was helping an individual who was working from home. 
And he said, I really need some help with my home office. So I went to help him there. And he said, I, I enjoy your language so much. Would you coach me at work? And that was my foray into, okay. I, I said, look, I haven't done this before, but I'm willing to try it. And if at any point you don't find value to let me know, but I would go and we would have a two to three hour session. I had no idea that that was like way long, but I was like, if I'm going to travel up to your office, this needs to be, um, this needs to be worth my while. So I would go and we would have these long meetings and some, it was, it was fabulous way to start. I love that you were sort of invited to that next stage. Mm -hmm. Um, so you didn't have to go looking for it. Mm -hmm. You also, you invented something related to professional organizing, which I, you know, I am always astounded by people who create physical things. I mean, we're all thought leaders. I it's easy. I don't want to say it's easy to get paid for your thoughts, but it's easy to come up with them. But like yeah. to create, yeah, yeah an they idea don't stop. Yeah. And like physically create. So, what's this thing that you created? Talk about yeah. being before Marie Kondo's time. Like, what was the thing you created? Yeah, yeah. And when, and I give full credit here to Yuriko Izakimi, who was my then business partner and who came up with the original concept. This is a, a concept for folding clothes vertically, the way Marie Kondo got everybody. Um, thinking about, oh, you can put your clothes vertically in a drawer. Well, we came up with a tool to help you do that. And it's interesting because, yeah, you can fold things without the tool, but the tool, it's, it's the difference between having a piece of paper to put away, like imagine that's a t-shirt or a book. Would you rather manage this or would you rather manage a bunch of floppy pieces right. of paper t-shirts, right? So Plio is the name of the product, P-L-I-I-O. You can still see it at Plio.com. Cross your fingers. There's maybe a chance it'll come back to market. I'm still working on that. Um, but it was, I had to look at this concept and really test it out from my um, knowledge as a professional organizer, working in people's homes. I was already going into homes and teaching people how to do this. And along came Eureka and this idea that a tool could make it easier. And it really does. Not only does it make the folding easier, but we learned that wasn't the biggest pain point. So when you're, it's an interesting business lesson. You're looking for what's the real struggle. The real struggle was this manageability that you'd fold your clothes. I remember being, this is kind of funny. I was with a couple and we were looking in their bedroom closet and the wife said to the husband, I was looking at the top shelf, right? So there's all the hanging clothes and there's a top shelf and their sweaters piled up there. So she said, don't touch that shirt or that sweater because I just folded it. Imagine that you have clothes that are off limits because of when they were folded. Like the, the concept is nuts, right? So, so this tool, when you fold around a Pleo filer or piler, those were my sort of borrowing from paper management and taking it into the closet. When you do that, the structure there means you can have a pile of eight sweaters you can lift them all up, take one out, put them down, nothing messed up. You can use your full wardrobe. So whether it's in a shelf or a drawer, you now have, a, it's, it folds right, stays neat. It so. just sounds like you were listening to the pain points. You were looking beyond the more obvious common complaints for the thing mm -hmm. that was really slowing people down. And I, you know, I, again, taking something physical from an idea to a physical form is to me a pretty, pretty amazing. I almost did yeah. an entire podcast on this. So um, really, really excited. But then you, you continued on when did HSP, like um, highly sensitive people sort of become more of your message, like mm. you're doing the organizing, you're doing the coaching, you're living your life. How did you how did you end up in this current iteration? Like now you're now you are the thought leader who's sharing ideas, sharing content, you're hosting a podcast, working mm -hmm. on books, all this good stuff. So how did that start to transform? So I think it's I'll just say I, I learned about the trait. I'm thinking it's eight years ago now. And so I had to understand my relationship to it for a while. And then I started to real how realize how profound it is once you understand this, to use it as a design parameter in your life. So taking my product design, taking this kind of thinking and saying, wait a minute, if I'm going to honor this, how do, and it relates to my performance, it's sort of now weaving everything together and saying, if I understand my nature and how I am, my level of sensory awareness, amongst other things, I can now weave in 
productivity and sensitivity and understand like sensitive people are full of all these talents. How do we invite those talents to, to come out? I really believe we are, you know, if we go back and we look at who are the creative people, who are the thinkers, um, there are such standouts. I mean, and, and the interesting thing is sensitivity is also apparent in many forms of neurodivergency. And neurodivergency essentially means non-typical ways of thinking and processing. And so one example is Richard Branson and dyslexia. I mean, there's an example of what a mind seeing things, right? And I love that he's become a champion for that and the association of dyslexia and actually doing great things, right? So I started to realize, first of all, that sensitivity was worth talking about in a really positive way and thinking that when I started the podcast, which is just over a year ago now, that that was going to be my, my big message. And I've stepped back a bit, stepped back or and have a bigger perspective now. And I really believe that we're, we're really positioned right now at a moment in time where we've come through a global trauma. We have cultural PTSD and nobody's inviting us to take a beat, which I have a whole issue with. But we need now to capitalize on the gains that the pandemic has brought us in terms of an understanding of autonomy and flexibility and productivity and the relationship there. And we need to claim the autonomy that we need and we need leaders to understand that this is so critical to our performance that we need to redesign work. So now I've really, my podcast is really about the intersection of productivity, which I have this depth of knowledge in now studying for over 15 years, productivity specifically, and inclusivity, being part of the sensitive community, which is minimum one in five people. Some people are saying now one in well, about 30%. I think if you're going to use the word high, I'm still thinking it's around one in five. But what about all the other neurodivergencies? What about invisible illness? What about um, gender issues? What about race, racism in the workplace? What about all of these ways, ageism? What about the way so many people are marginalized when they have a lot to offer? And I'm basically saying, stop squandering talent. Mm. And I, I think, love this. I love yeah. your, how your message has really broadened and it's, it's become a bigger tent. You still have a different perspective than a lot of people who are doing like, for instance, DEI, work or DIB for belonging work mm -hmm. um, that I haven't heard uh, mm -hmm. people sort of focus on. Um, it's sort of like the person I mentioned earlier, Maura Aaron's melee who focuses on introversion, mm -hmm. right? Like when that was happening, when she started talking about that, that wasn't something we were talking about, you know, and then we started getting books about, you know, quiet and, you know, there's sort of, there's sort of like zeitgeist moment happen. And I feel like that's where you're now leaning towards is like, how do we, acknowledge these neurodivergencies that if you add up all the ways people are neurodivergent, that's a lot of people. That's like no longer a tiny little minority in your office. That's probably yeah. a lot of people on your teams, a lot of people that you're interacting with, even your clients. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I, and, and what's interesting in that group too, is that because more children are being diagnosed, if you will, and understood, parents are going, yo, wait a minute. Hello, I'm part of this club, I've especially women, because hyperactivity with, with ADHD was not considered really, uh, was considered part of ADHD. And there's the inattentive version as well. So there's the number of women I know in their 30s and 40s are like, oh, ADHD. I'm curious where I am on the spectrum. I haven't been tested. I'm curious where I am because as I, I, my, I realize my tendency to blurt is impulsivity. It's, it's a verbal impulsivity that I just, I never connected. I was thinking physical action, but my blurred ability is off the charts. So it's, I'm like, oh, oh, I really, what do I need to do about this? So I'm, I'm curious. And the, the, the neat thing, so just about neurodivergency and sensitivity is that there's such a myriad of ways it shows up. So it still requires curiosity and nuance. I was mentioning George Strombolopoulos and his love of metal and motorcycles, yet he's the guy that just posted on Instagram a couple of days ago about 
what broke my heart was realizing that all the dogs that I first followed on Instagram have probably crossed over the rainbow bridge. I'm like, oh, George, I love that guy. I love him. But at the same time, listen to this metal man, you know, like it's just amazing. I love this. I love people who help us expand our own notions and limitations of what a person is when we hear a word. Um, Yeah. yeah. I've got a question about how you stay in touch with people. Mm. Um, Because I know like you're in the last like few minutes, you've described all these different types of communities that you have been a part of workplace as well as the new work that you were doing as well as like the way you show up in the world. So you have gathered and collected over the years, you know, 15, 20 years, like all these different kinds of people. Mm -hmm. There's always those inner circle people that, you know, you're going to stay in touch with, but then I always wonder about the second and third layer, or you might call them second and third tier out. These are weaker connections, but people that you enjoy, it might've been Mm -hmm. someone that you met at a conference a year ago, or you work with them five years ago, but you haven't had a real a reason to work with them since. Mm-hmm. How do you think about staying connected, nurturing those kinds of connections? Any habits, philosophies, practices? Yeah, I'd say it's really become clear to me that it's personally one-on-one reaching out is absolutely necessary. I mean, I do all the social media stuff, but when it, you know, one of the things that I do is. You know, on Facebook, you'll see someone is posting about something sad or it's a happy birthday. I don't do the broadcast message or the responding in the thread. I'm sending always a personal message. I'm always sending something that's happy birthday and I'm thinking about them. I, I often to try to, I just sent this to um, actually a client who I have tons of respect for. I just sent a a reference to a a film that I thought they would enjoy. So it's, you know, you pop into my mind and Blake Fly, I don't know if you know Blake Fly, but he does this and he's masterful at it. And I realized I do it too. And to me, it's acting on those prompts that when something comes up in your mind that makes you think about someone, don't lose, don't lose it because they don't hang around in my memory too well, but act on them. And that reaching out and knowing that someone is in your thoughts, I think I think that's a, a way to keep a relationship alive. I will say back to high sensitivity though, highly sensitive people have more mirror neurons than the average person. And our ability to build rapport is off the charts mm-hmm. because I can... I can be with someone who I know is type A and needs to get things done. And I can speed up to be at their tempo and go, okay, where are we going with this now? Right. I can kind of dance with them and match them. Or if I need someone who needs to be chill, I'll find their groove and I'll be where they are. And so that's maybe something that I'm now aware of as something that I was doing intuitively, but is maybe an invitation for someone who's not thinking about that. I've, it's to tune into where somebody else is and choose to be their dance partner. Mm, I love this. And I love the visuals of that as well. I mean, uh, you brought up Blake Fly. Uh, I've had a, you know, the opportunity to interview him and he's also interviewed me for my 300th episode, I believe. So we'll, we'll put links in the show notes to those interviews. Great person to know and to follow and to be inspired by. Mm-hmm. You know, as we're wrapping up here, I, I'm about to get to my favorite wrap-up question. Before that, we're going to hear a quick word from our sponsors. All right, so Claire, it's a year from now, mm-hmm. and uh, I know you and I are going to see each other regularly between now and then, but let's say it's a year from now, and you or I suddenly realize it's been a year since we recorded this, and I want to know, a year from now, I'm going to turn to you and say, oh my gosh, what have been the highlights of the past year? What should we be celebrating? So with that in mind, what are you most looking forward to in the next year? It's got to be completing the book. So I've, uh, I'm working on a book and it's all about stimulating and, and supporting the conversations we need to be having to make sure we're inviting everyone on the team to be able to contribute their, their best. So I just see people shying away from those conversations and I'm like, hang on a second, I'm going to invite you to the self-reflection and the understanding that we all need different things. This belief that, that productivity is personal and that if productivity is personal, flexibility is inclusivity. Like I need, I need that to be out in the world as a concept people get. 
and I really want to be saying I've got amazing speaking opportunities to be that person, not writing with chalk, but person leading the discussion uh, and inviting more leaders who are on the cusp listening to this and saying, I know there's something here. How do I get there? And that's that's what I'm going to be so proud to be looking forward to is those stages. I can't wait to celebrate the release of your book and be on your launch team and help it get out in the world. Productivity is personal. Flexibility is inclusivity. These are great ideas to, to wrap this conversation on. How can people find you and follow your work? Oh, thanks, Robbie. Uh, the easiest place to go is clairekumar.com. Claire, no I, so I joke, no third I, and Kumar as in Harold and Kumar. So now you know how to spell Claire Kumar, clairekumar.com. You'll find Happy Space, which is the podcast there. You'll find more about speaking. You'll find my little story about my life and see pictures of cats. Yeah, come get to know me there and uh, on all the socials. I love hearing from people and your questions. It always prompts new content and a new problem solving. So I welcome uh, hearing from you. Fantastic. We're going to put all the links that we've mentioned and you just mentioned in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Claire, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Claire. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 347. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.